Welcome to the Inside Data Center podcast. I'm Andy Davis, and in this podcast, I will interview the people working in the data center sector and tell their stories. If you are working in the DC sector or you are looking to work in the sector, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to the Inside Data Center podcast. Today, I'm joined by James Ricks, Project Director and Global Community of Practice Lead for Data Centers at Arcadis. Good afternoon, James. Good afternoon, Andy. Thanks very much for inviting us along. Absolute pleasure. And I still nearly got the time wrong, even though we've just talked about both being in the UK, which makes a pleasant change. Thanks for coming on today. Obviously, you know, really keen to learn more about your career and also about all the your involvement within the data center sector. I know you're very passionate about a number of topics, so we'll, we'll delve into them shortly. Before we start, do you just want to give a quick introduction of, of who you are and what you do at Arcadis? Yeah, so obviously, as you said, you know, James Ricks, I've been with Arcadis about three and a half years uh, now, working solely in the data center sector uh, throughout Europe. And with the global community of practice, I have an understanding of what Arcadis are doing globally uh, in respect to the data center industry. And I've, I've been in the data center world since about 2007. I say about since the 12th of December 2007 when I walked into Global Switch Data Center on Taiseng Drive in Singapore with uh, three other colleagues who remain nameless at this particular moment. Uh, So I've got to understand a little bit about data centers, speak at data center conferences, you know, reasonably regularly around the globe. Uh, I like to think I know a little bit about data centers and like to try and help others to understand this, you know, fascinating industry that we're involved in. Uh, definitely, and we can, we can cover that in, in in a bit as well. I always like to go back to the beginning because I think it just helps paint a picture of how others can start their career in the sector. So how did you first start your career? And, and like you just touched on, how did you then make that transition into the data center sector? Right, well, I suppose I've come in not a very direct route into the data center industry. When I left school at the age of 16, probably about 350 years ago, Uh, I started off as an apprentice carpenter and joiner, working for my father, who was a a general builder and and bricklayer. Served a three-year apprenticeship, uh, an indentured apprenticeship, uh, and got qualified to advanced level city and guilds carpenter and joinery. And for a long time, worked around the building industry, ended up working for a large housing association, running their major repairs and new build programs across half of the country. Moved out to Asia in 2003 and very quickly learnt how to make a small fortune in building surveying. Start with a big fortune. Um, and was then uh, invited to join a consultancy uh, at that time that uh, was looking at the data centre market and wanted help and assistance on the constructional side of things. And my construction background uh, was what was uh, attractive. So in in a way... It's a bit like the old Morecambe and Wise gag, fighting your way through the stage curtain and all of a sudden, hang on, I'm here in data centres. And it was just something that, uh, as we were discussing earlier, can become somewhat all-consuming. And I got to really enjoy the the Asian data centre market, then came back here in 2015, uh, continuing to work in in data centres ever since. Yeah, no, no, it's interesting that you obviously apprentice, which is another point I highlight quite regularly on this podcast, the amount of people that come through an apprenticeship route 
route, which is why it's so important that we push it as a sector, but also from the carpentry side, because obviously there's that misconception that you have to be an engineer, an electrical engineer by trade to be successful in the sector. So on that point, how did you find the transition into into what is perceived as a technical sector, despite not having that engineering background? I think it's having a willingness to learn and being a reasonably quick study on things and having the ability to listen to what people say when people talk. Uh, Also, one of the great advantages is is asking questions. And sometimes I start off by talking to people. I may ask some really daft questions, but sometimes it's to see whether you know what I'm talking about or whether I know what I'm talking about. And maybe we can go on this learning journey together. Uh, And that becomes uh, really interesting. I was presenting to some colleagues earlier on and got asked a question about geothermal heat uh, and the use of that within data centers as geothermal energy. It's not something I know about. But ask me in about a week or 10 days time, it probably will be something that I know about because we're always learning. We just can't uh, remain static. And I think that was the, the key with an apprenticeship, not only giving the, the thought as how things go together, uh, but also how you then work in with people. Uh, because, you know, you, although you can teach fundamentals of project management, uh, it's about how you gel people together, how you bring teams together, how you get international teams in particular to work together especially with cross-cultural differences uh, and understand, uh, understanding that, and sometimes being the buffer between those uh, those you know, intricacies. Yeah, and I was going to touch on that as well, the fact that you've obviously spent that period working in Asia. How, how did that differ from working in the UK or Europe? In the UK, Europe, we can often be quite direct about what we say. We'll say what we mean, we'll say what we think. In Asia, things often take a bit more of a circuitous route, and you have to listen carefully to the conversation. Sometimes yes actually means no, and it's understanding where maybe and probably sit within that uh, sentence as to whether it means yes or no, and then being able to take a you know cognizance of the fact of who's the senior person in the room. And you may have to deal with that senior person to get a decision and a discussion going. Often when you are a presenter at conferences, you're relatively safe. And when you come to the question and answer section, are there any questions? Nobody wants to put their hand up. The foreigners in the room and my my good friend Mark Acton was always great at putting his hand up and asking asking a question. Well done, Mark. Uh, And that was always appreciated but sometimes also asking them to repeat back well what is it that you want me to do you i want you to do you know, can you give me that feedback so you have both come to the same understanding because people can sit there yes 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 i agree yes actually mean i haven't got a clue what you've spoken about but yes is the answer that you need to hear so it's understanding that and and the body language of people to be able to make things move forward. And sometimes a little bit of humour within there can also help to break the barriers down a little bit, not that I'm ever known as being a humorous person. 
I think it's easy to forget as well in the data center sector because it is such a global sector that you're dealing with different cultures all the time. I think you can become kind of, you assume that you're just dealing with someone of the same culture as yourself because you're operating in English, you're talking to people regularly, but there's so many different cultural nuances across the world and it's really important that you do mirror or match that when you're looking to do business in that specific geography. I think that's correct. And um, sometimes it's, just making sure that your English is actually understood. Just because because somebody speaks English, they may not always understand everything that you say. So sometimes it's just having to break down some of the more complex bits in a conversation so people can understand that. But one of the great advantages of the data center industry is that data center and a lot of our terms in English are used in foreign languages. So in Indonesian, for example, it's not Pusat Data, it is data center, which is great for, for foreigners like myself to be able to understand, uh, everybody else to understand what we are talking about. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned earlier, obviously, you've been in the sector since around 2007, or the 12th of December, to be precise. Um, yeah. What have been the main changes you've seen over that period? Obviously, this, you know, we all talk about how quickly the sector changes, but what would you say are the significant developments you've noticed in the last 15 years? Certainly power density uh, on racks. We, you know, we were talking back in 2007, 2008, of maybe two kilowatts per rack. Now we have racks that are regularly at 20 kilowatts and in some specialised applications, 100 kilowatts. The method of cooling as well as has changed. Uh, often we would be on a pressurized underfloor plenum, you know, with a one meter raised floor that moved on from the 450 millimeters raised floor that was often common. But now we are looking at a solid floor, a flooded room concept, uh, for, for cooling, hot, hot aisle, cold aisle containment, cold plate cooling, full immersion. All of this is generated on. And as you said, Andy, it does move very quickly. It's a very fast-paced industry. Um, Mark Monroe from Microsoft once described it as an internet year is rather like a dog year, seven of those to every calendar year. And certainly that does mean that the industry moves ahead very quickly. And therefore, it means we also cannot be complacent just because we may look at we're having uh, carbon targets set at 2030 or 2050, in internet terms, that's probably 250 years away. But we need to do something now. I think it's easy to forget how quickly it moves as well because you're in it. And like you say, it's all consuming this industry. And you kind of, until you sit back and actually look and analyze what's happened, you're just rolling with it, aren't you? You're just moving with the sector. And then all of a sudden, you're so far advanced from where you were 12 to 18 months ago. And I think I always say I said this on a few podcasts a while back, but during COVID, we didn't have that time to really sit back and think because everything was moving so quickly. And what you've seen over the last probably six months is everyone taking stock a little bit and working out where they are and what's happened and where we're going as a sector. I think there there, there is that truth to it, but I think we also need to look at where we have come from look at that closely to make sure that we're not condemning ourselves to make the mistakes of the past. Um, I, I presented recently on a couple of conferences with some slides that the future is in the past. Uh, it, it certainly is if we only pay attention to what we're doing. 
climate change was spoken about in 1896, use of electric vehicles from 1897, hydrogen being the forever fuel 1980. We need to think about these things from the past and make sure that we are not just putting a spin on it. You know, for today, modern methods of construction have been around for a very long time. So we need to make sure that we have understood where we have come from, but use that as the guide as to where we are going to, to make sure that we don't trip over our own feet. Uh, definitely, and a great point. I also wanted to touch on Arcadis. I know that obviously you're pretty busy within the data center space at the moment, but do you want to just give a bit of an overview of how you position yourselves and and kind of what your plans are within the data center element of Arcadis? Yeah, Arcadis has maybe not always been synonymous with uh, with data centers. Uh, however, I've done some research recently that looked at well, how much you know have we done in data centers since 2017, picking an arbitrary point in time, and we've actually designed, project managed, cost managed one megawatt of IT to completion every four and a half weeks since 2017. We have round about 550 megawatts of IT under design and construction right at this moment. You know, we are active in several countries across Europe, Belgium, Netherlands, Finland, France, Spain, Portugal, Italy, as well as the UK and Ireland. You know, further afield, we are building out in North America, tendering for works in Uruguay, Chile, uh, Canada. We're building out in Singapore and in Hong Kong, tendering in Philippines, Australia. So we are very active uh, within the industry. Um, often we are probably best known for our cost management uh, our cost and our cost indices. But we are very, very good at project management, schedule management, project controls. And recently we have brought design into that. So now we offer a full service from site finding, due diligence, design, cost planning, construction, up until the RJ45. And often what happens beyond there, we'll let the customers deal with that. You know, let's not try and eat all the elephant all at once. We'll need, need to leave something for next year. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. And obviously, one one element I always look out for is your kind of data center location index, which I think is a really valuable report. And you know, if listeners don't know what it is, you know, have, Google it and, and you'll find it no problem at all. But from a location perspective, everything's changing all the time, isn't it? And when we talk about dog years, location is a great example of, of where the where the majority of development is now taking place. What trends are you seeing at the moment and with regards to the location of data centers? I think we can't mention location without mentioning moratoriums. Uh, and that you know, does skew the market to where uh, you may have wanted to place a data center, perhaps in Ireland uh, or in the Netherlands. You know, now with moratoriums being in, in place, it does restrict. I know in the last... Uh, issue of the location index, Singapore scored very highly. Currently, you know, they are only allowing builds of up to 30 megawatts and about two or three of those in the forthcoming years. So that means there's a restriction on what we can actually do, which is why we are undertaking now a review of that location index 
you know, with a view to publishing that again in Q1 2023. So as a refreshed version that will undertake um, or bring into focus these moratoriums. The other thing we want to look at within there is the ability to obtain renewable energy. I know that can be somewhat of a, a contentious subject um, because not all renewable energy is renewable. People have different ideas and want to splash a bit of greenwash over it. You know, but that needs to be not just taken into account with renewable energy, but also the circular economy. Take, for example, wind turbines. Over the course of the next few years, 45,000 wind turbine blades come to end of life. Currently, it is very difficult to recycle them. So that means about 45,000 wind turbine blades are destined for landfill. So is that a true circular economy, a good end of life usage for these wind turbines? If they're out at sea, are they just going to be decommissioned and left there? So we need to think these things through rather than kicking the can down the road, which has often been the case. And I think it's quite sad that we tend to kick the can down the road on a lot of things. I will offset this carbon. We'll leave it for a future generation to pick up. So my children, your children, you know, how much are they going to thank us? They come up with what we think was a brilliant idea, but it's not been completely thought through. Again, the recycling of lithium-ion batteries also springs to mind as far as that's concerned. So we want to try and bring all of this into the location index and make sure that we uh, have a, a new generation of this index you know, moving forward. Often we find when we produce the index, lots of countries will raise their hands. Well, why aren't I at the top? I, my position should be higher. As with all things, you know, beauty in the, being in the eye of the beholder, it's how we understand and interpret that data at that particular time. We can't just skew the data to suit some countries' aspirations as wanting to be higher. Maybe this time we also need to look a little bit further at Africa, uh, which although Arcadis uh, doesn't have an entity within Africa currently, uh, we, we do know that there is... Um, a lot of data center activity, you know, around, around Kenya and South Africa and so on that we maybe need to look at to see how that rates within the index, along with the security of data and, and data sovereignty aspects of that as well. Yeah, and I always think it paints a great picture of those new markets. That's where I think it's really, really valuable because, again, there's so many new regions popping up all the time and it's hard to keep track of. And that kind of list, so to speak, gives you a good synopsis of those countries that are now becoming data centre hubs. Obviously, it brings us nicely on the renewable chat onto sustainability, another big topic in the sector that we all talk about. And I don't think there's general uh, an industry-wide solution yet, but it's something we're all talking about. With regards to the sector, what do you think we need to do to really push that sustainability challenge and, and manage it going forward? Well, can we start off by defining what is sustainability? Because it's a very, it's, that is a very good point. Because at the moment, we don't know. It's a bit like saying, I want a road to net zero. Well, where are you to start with? Any road starts with a single step. You need to know where you are to start with. At Arcadis, you know, we've taken sustainability as one of our three core pillars for growth over the next few years, along with focus and scale and digital empowerment. So sustainability is something that is very core to what we want to do. 
but it does involve making sensible use of the resources that we have. Understanding that everything that we do has an impact, either good or bad. You've probably noticed, Andy, on my email footers, it says that every email is 18 grams worth of carbon. Therefore, I won't be sending a thank you. Please assume I am grateful for what you've sent. But it's actually doing that because at the end of the day, it starts with us. You know, what are we doing sustainably? I've spoken recently to colleagues about switching off. You know, is the TV in your home on standby or is it turned off? If it's on standby, it's probably taking another 16 pounds of electricity per year to keep it on standby. We don't realize it because we don't see it. Just different to a dripping tap, that once we see that being wasted, we get it resolved as quickly as possible. I've also said to, to offices, well, are we turning off all our screens at night? Just think how much we will be saving. It's a very simple thing to do. And it's a personal challenge. And like to everybody watching this podcast, have you thought about what you are doing about sustainability? Is your printer turned off at night? Are your screens turned off? Yeah. Do, because electricity is becoming much more expensive. So we need to start being sustainable at home. Don't wait for organizations to do it. Organizations don't do anything. It's people within organizations that do. Therefore, as people, we need to take personal accountability, personal responsibility, to make sure that we're on that sustainability route ourselves. Then organizations organically will take that on board as well. On that point, as well, I just think it's a great point to raise. Do you think that cost, as an in increased cost to the consumer, will drive sustainability? Because one thing I've always said to people on this podcast, you know, who who drives it, the customer, you know, or the operator? It's one of those, isn't it? But uh, like you just said, most of it comes from the customer. So obviously, that increased cost to the customer and to us as individuals is going to make people more aware of things like switching things off and having more economical equipment in your data centre? I think what we've got here is the Jeevan's paradox. Yeah, when things were very expensive, we would only use a little bit of it. Now things have shown an elastic demand that you know we don't see the cost. We're using more and more and more of it. So as the cost has come down, the usage has, has, has greatly expanded. Yeah, when we were first on the internet years and years ago, little clock running in the corner of the screen. Oh, I've been on here for 10 minutes. You know, I need to get off. It's going to cost me a fortune. Now we're on 24-7. We don't even think about the cost because it's an invisible cost. If we start thinking a bit more practically, changing mindset, listen to maybe the younger generation that have a good view on these things. Stop being so proud that we think we know it all. Then we're maybe making a step along the way. And just don't keep offsetting it, kicking it to the, the curb. Do, let's do something about it now, because that that's kicked to the curb or kicked down the road, we're not going to deal with. 
No, definitely. I think you've raised some great points there and I'm sure that will resonate with, with the listeners. Another topic that we talk about and it brings us on to young people as well that we've talked about before and both very passionate about is is talent in the industry, you know, retaining it, attracting it, what can we all do? So I wanted to touch on that topic. What do you think the sector needs to do to attract more people? But let's also talk about retention as well because that's really important. Okay, two, two good points. First of all, the data center industry is a really secretive industry. We don't talk about it, and therefore we become our own worst enemy. You know, so we, what we need to be able to do is share with others what a fantastic industry this is. I mean, it was so great to see recently that Uptime Institute, Google, Microsoft, and Meta had put together the datacenterpathfinder.com website. You know, to show where there are all these pathways into the data center industry. I think there's about 230 different pathways into the industry on that website. I took that very personally. I went back to uh, to my son's school and I said to my son, log me into your careers portal. He's at senior school, year 10. I said, okay, let's get into the careers portal. Let's put in data center. Let's spell it both ways, just in case they like ER instead of RE. Nothing. So I emailed the provider of that portal. And within a week, I got them to change both our algorithms to show data centers and to add in the Pathfinder website as well. It again comes down to, we've spoken earlier in the podcast about a call to action, us as individuals. What have we done? What have you done? The KO Data Academy. Make your own little data center. Have we actually shown that to schools? Have we gone out? You know, this we talk a lot about STEM, but unless we do something ourselves, it's all just hot air. And we shipped enough of hot air around the data center floor as it is. But we need to make sure that what we're doing, we can say, well, okay, I've done this or I've done that because then we have done something about it ourselves. If we haven't, we have no right to talk about there being a lack of talent because we haven't done anything about it. We're just whinging for the sake of whinging. I think, again, like, great points. And obviously, as you know, these are topics I'm keen to highlight as well. And I've obviously had Rhonda on about the um, the Career Pathfinder, KO on about the, their new platform, and also UTC, which is another great um community project that they're putting together collaborative project sorry so there's a lot going on now but I'm, i totally agree with your point and it's a i guess it's a question i always ask to people as well you know well, what are you doing it's it's not a problem that one person can solve we all need to get out there and, and do something um with regards to young people though i think it's quite hard to get in front of them sometimes because it's not always easy to go into schools, et cetera. But what, what would you say to that? From your experience, has it been fairly easy for you to get into schools and talk to people? I haven't gone into schools myself, but I've encouraged our younger talent to go into schools. I mean, I, a lot of people know I have an apprentice, trainee project manager, that she is regularly talking to schools, six forms, your career days about data centers, not just about Arcadis, but about data centers and what a fantastic industry it is. She is a real advocate, you know, for what we do. You know, and 
you know, hats off to, you know, to Laura Orwood in, in the great work that she does. But also it's as organizations making sure we have an early careers section to bring people from schools, colleges, universities, not just parceling them as project managers or cost managers, but giving them exposure to data centers. And they're the call out to clients. Don't be scared about having younger and emerging talent working on your projects. It is for your benefit. And also for the, for the industry in general, how well do we showcase young and emerging talent? You know, I saw a, 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 an advert recently, you know, young and emerging talent under 35s. Yeah, okay. You know, might as well be saying you're under 65s. Young and emerging talent is not by the time you've got to 35. You're well into your career at that stage. It needs to be targeted a lot earlier. We need to do something practical about this. And, you know, really, if we can spur this on, this will be to the benefit of everybody. Something I looked at before COVID, which seems like so many years ago now, was a young person network and trying to create a network of young people in the sector and utilising those people to, like you have done really, like you've, you've just identified there, using those people to help attract more people into the sector. So I think that's probably something that, you know, I should get back on my radar. And I know there's a lot of people out there that would be quite keen to to help with that. But I think there is definitely a... An, a a need for a community of young people to take it forward because like you say you know i'm how old am i 42 i think or 43 i can never remember i'm not far off a young person but i've been working for under 35 i've been working in the sector for 20 odd years and it doesn't make sense that i'm driving it it should be those people of that generation that are really taking this forward so i think that's a great point well made i think it's interesting as well are organizations shy to sh uh, showcase their younger and emerging talent for fear of having them you know, hoovered up by other organizations? Does it matter? If they get hoovered up by another organization, bring some more in. I had that, I had that exact conversation when I talked about this originally with somebody and they said, oh, we, we would sponsor that if you did it. And I said, I wouldn't have a sponsor of a corporate organization because for that exact reason. Because I know that if it was sponsored by company X, company Y would say, we don't want our young people being a member of that community because they might go and work for company X. So there is still that mindset, unfortunately. But then the flip of that is there's a lot more collaborative programs now, which yeah. are taking down some of those barriers. And I think the, the more that we can do that, you know, and the way that um, I, I, I got uh, told off for this expression, but I don't care, I'll use it again. You know, being so male, pale and stale, you know, in other words, we've been around for a very long time. You know, we will not be around forever. I mean, when I am, you know, retired, who's taking my role? Is it somebody else of a similar vintage? We need to make sure that we are, you know, surrounding ourselves with up and coming talent and lead from the back. In other words, push them forward. They are the future. We need to push them forward so that they are forging their own career with us supporting them. We don't always have to be leading from the front. 
No, definitely. So let's take that offline anyway. And if anyone yeah. listening wants to get involved, Young People's Network, let, let's get this off the ground. It, COVID destroyed my idea because I, I had it as very much a physical event and it's back. we're back on now. So let, let's take that discussion offline or we'll talk about it all day. Yeah. Another point that I'm asking everybody at the moment is about the future because I just think that, and we touched on it already, the sector's moving so quickly and we, do we really know what the future looks like? To be, to be honest, can we know what it looks like? I think it's a challenge in itself. But is it, how do you think the sector's going to evolve over the next few years? Anything specific you'd like to highlight? I think there are several areas that we can, can look at uh, for the future. Um, we can, you know, postulise about, you know, cooling, you know, fuel types, whether it is hydrogen or, you know, fuel cells. But we also maybe also need to think, what about built form, you know, for data centers? You know, I think in the future, we need to move away from so much reliance upon concrete and steel. I mean, cement, you know, accounts for seven, eight uh, percent of carbon produced, you know, globally every year. The more we can reduce that, the better. We could go back again to look at lessons from the past. Why are we not investigating glue lamb timber and CLT cross laminated timber panels, you know, to build out data centers where we can reduce the carbon element of that by 40%? You know, car, you know, trees sequester carbon during the course of their growth cycle up to maturity. If it's a sustainable forest, you know, we are having a con- constant resupply. Sometimes we need to get out of our comfort zone. Just because that's the way we've always done it, we need to move forward. But thinking about the the point you said about the future, looking at alternative fuels, also moving from that point about why are we doing the same that we've always done? Look at things differently. Bring in people from other sectors, from other industries, rather than us being quite so proud as to what we're doing. Other thing I've been thinking about recently is Bitcoin mining. Not that I am a lover of Bitcoin mining, but I think as a data center industry, we view them as the ugly cousin. We have nothing to do with them, and yet they know how to build a data center quickly, cheaply, and cool it efficiently. We need to learn from what they are doing. Let's not keep being so proud that we can't learn from other people. So we need to take that on board to be able to move our thoughts forward. Yeah, definitely. Bitcoin mining is, is another point that I'm quite interested in as well. And obviously, I've had Chad Harris on this podcast, who's building a ridiculously large one gigawatt um, Bitcoin mining facility out in Texas. And it is a fascinating sector in how they do things. And, and there is definitely something there around working together and, and taking down those barriers. I know, I think Chad's talking at a, a conference in London in a few weeks, so I'm sure he'll he'll raise some interesting points with with regards to that. Um, and the other point about other sectors, the example I always use for that is Nautilus and their you know water based data centres. You know, Jim Connaughton came from uh, a submarine background and was thinking, well, why don't we use this technology in data centres? You know, we call it with water in a, in a submarine in the marine environment. Why don't we use it in data centres? So. Definitely a lot to be learned from other sectors and bringing that into the sector is only going to be a benefit, I think. That's right. And you know, when, the Microsoft, when Microsoft ran their underwater data centers, they had no server failures 
in the time that uh, that data center was submerged because they purged the the atmosphere within their you know of oxygen replaced it with nitrogen you know so we need to think differently about what we do i know we had a an online conversation the other day about different terminologies within data centers and whether we now have metros edge fog cloud you know yada 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 however we need to think well how are we using these facilities edge facilities if it's a data center in a box we've stuck it out in some environment when we go on a service call how do we get into it without releasing all of that lovely controlled environment into the the street outside and everything from the street coming in so we need to think through everything to make sure that we're tented we have an airlock before we go in even if it's a a tent we bring with us you know to make sure that we can get in there and work appropriately effectively uh, i know tony grayson asked recently you know what is edge well edge i think means anything you actually want it to mean at the moment we still haven't quite you know again defined edge a bit like sustainability but we do need to make sure that we are bringing accessibility you know because only 50% of the of the world have access to the internet how do we bring that accessibility more easily to other people and more sustainably so that we're not destroying what it is that we want to uh, to do yeah definitely and I'm, I'm having that conversation with tony grayson this week so future podcast coming out what is edge but we're not going to go down that rabbit hole because we'll be on for another half an hour if we try and uh, decide what edge is today well, nice to warm it up for, for Tony. <laughs> exactly, that's it. Yeah, you've lined it up. Hopefully that one will be out a week after this one. So fingers crossed all being well. Um, before we close out, there's just one question I ask everyone on the podcast. If you could give one piece of advice to anyone looking to work in the data center sector, what would it be? Grasp hold of every opportunity that is offered to you. Don't be shy. It- I wouldn't be here if I hadn't reached out to grasp every opportunity that was presented to me. And if people are showing some faith and confidence in you, use it. Grasp hold of it, and you will have a fantastic career in this industry. Great advice, and I think it's really important that we do take those opportunities in work and in life, to be honest with you, because sometimes we can be a bit nervous about taking an opportunity or taking that leap, but... You know, my mindset's always been what's the worst that can happen? And normally the worst is not as bad as you think it is when you are deciding what to do. Exactly. You know, if you reach out to somebody, connect with people within the industry, what's the worst they can say? It's no. Or ignore you. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not bad at all. But yeah, no, thanks for that. I really enjoyed that conversation. As I said, and I always say, you know, we could talk all day. You know, very. You, I know you're very passionate about the sector. I think you raised some great points, shared some great value for the listeners. Are you happy for, if anyone's got any questions to reach out to you directly? Of course. Always happy to, to talk with people and to further the discussion on. Excellent. And, and we'll meet up again soon in Tunbridge, Wales, overlooking that beach that's in your uh, on your screensaver. <laughs> Undoubtedly. I should be sat on the beach later on, I have no doubt. Well, thanks, James. Appreciate your time. We'll speak again soon. Okay, great. Thanks, Andy.